This is EM Cases Part 2 of Trauma, the first and last 15 minutes, with Drs. Kylie Bosman, Chris Hicks, and Andrew Petrosoniak. As we wrap up 2018, I need to give a huge thanks for the amazing support that I've been so fortunate to have from SREMI, the Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization whose vision is to improve EM research and education in Canada so that we can improve patient care in the ED and beyond. Without SREMI, there pretty much would be no EM cases. I would have never imagined the three quarters of a million podcast downloads to date when we started almost 10 years ago. So thank you very much, SREMI. I also want to thank the EM Cases team, which has grown too big to list all the individual names here, but their relentless work has helped bring you the podcasts, the Crit Cases blog, the Waiting to be Seen blog, the Rapid Reviews videos, the Pocus Cases videos, the EMU 365 videos, the Just for Nuggets emails, the Q&A Pearl of the Week, the EM Cases course, and the Quiz Vault, which is soon to be released to the world. Then there's the EM Cases Advisory Board, whose wisdom and advice has helped guide me and the EM Cases team. And of course, you, the EM Cases listeners, readers, and course participants. Thank you for engaging in the worldwide EM community and truly doing the lifelong learning thing so that you can be the best kick-ass EM providers that you can be. And with that... I'd like to shift gears and bring your attention to the nuances of binding the pelvis in the polytrauma patient. I want to move on to binding the pelvis. We know that one occult source of massive hemorrhage besides the belly and long bone fractures is the unstable pelvic fracture. You had mentioned near the top of the podcast, Dr. Bosman, that binding the pelvis is going to be one of those things you want to do pretty much upfront in the first 15 minutes for any patient in shock who you suspect has internal bleeding. What are the sort of biggest pitfalls when it comes to assessing for and treating pelvic fractures in the first 15 minutes of, of trauma resuscitation? So I would say if you're working with a learner, if you're working with another practitioner, one person examines that pelvis, recognizing that an unstable pelvis, an open book pelvis, if you will, is probably the canary in the cold mine. That's that's not going to be the vast majority of patients that are going to come in. And so you may or may not have a positive physical exam uh, to guide you as to whether or not that patient needs a pelvic binder, uh, which is why I would suggest an empiric, you know, with a, a mechanism consistent with a worrisome pelvic injury. Just bind it early. Recognizing that binding it early may help you control the venous bleed. So if someone has a big pump and arterial bleed from their pelvis, no pelvic binder in the world is going to be able to create pressures high enough to stop that arterial bleed. I think the other big pitfall is inappropriate application of a pelvic binder. So having it ride up too high on the pelvis, you're going to want it like a, you know, a 70s low rider gene, if you will. So you want it really at the greater trochanters, so very low on the pelvis in order for it to work properly. I have to figure out who I should give this credit to, but I heard the concept of rebranding pelvic binders as trochanteric binders, which I think is a, a great way to phrase it because people think about the iliac crest as being your pelvis and really it isn't, right? That's the the most proximal portion of your pelvic girl. Really what our binder should be thought of is binding the greater trochanters because that should be the central point of the binder. And if you have that concept in your head, it's much easier to get the binder in the right position the first time. In a really sick trauma patient, why not just bind the greater trochanters? We won't say bind the pelvis. <laughs> bind the greater trochanters of every patient. Forget about even examining to see if they're unstable or not. Forget about trying to get a portable pelvic x-ray. Again, you want to get that patient to the OR, to a trauma center as soon as possible. Why not just bind the greater trochanters of every sick trauma patient that comes into a, a non-trauma center or even at a trauma center? There's not much to say that's not a, a, a decent strategy, Anton. I think that's probably a strategy that, you know, if you wanted to paint the brush, you could paint the brush with that uh, approach. And I think you probably could do that. You know, there are some conditions where you want to sort out whether or not there's an open fracture. For instance, is there, you know, is there blood in the vaginal vault, et cetera, which may prompt you earlier on to perhaps cover the patient with antibiotics, et cetera. We're probably going to talk about this a little later, but this whole concept of needing a rectal exam, uh, you know, before you put the Foley in for 
the high riding prostate, et cetera, I think has gone largely by the wayside. So I think as a, a fail safe, don't forget to do it. Consider putting a pelvic binder on most patients in the periphery, I would say is not a bad strategy. Yeah, not much to argue with there. I mean, the idea that one person should examine the pelvis, I would say you could take that down to zero people should examine the pelvis in the right circumstance. If you have a really sick patient, their blood pressure's in their boots, and you think they might have a pelvic fracture based on you know, what you've been told in the field or just based on what they look like, I'd argue, why examine the pelvis at all? Put a pelvic binder on that patient and worry about it later. Uh, if you could shoot a portable x-ray and look at it in your trauma room, that kind of replaces the need to examine the pelvis really at all. And if you are going to examine the pelvis, I really subscribe to the notion that outward pressure or checking for vertical instability are both not indicated. The maneuver should be simply grab the iliac wings and see if they move together. If they do, stop, keep your hands there, don't move the pelvis, be ready. Yeah. Like, like you heard sort of as a matter of preparation, have the pelvic binder in position, hold the iliac wings where you think they ought to be and then put a binder on. There's no added advantage. Really what you're doing, if you don't, or if you really aren't sure and you want to put a binder on, I think that's fine and it's totally appropriate. And if you overcorrect or you put the binder in a funny position or it's not necessary at all based on your x-ray, fine. You can always adjust it or take it off. So I think that's a, that's a perfect strategy. But really in the end, in a really sick patient, the one thing that your pelvic binder is going to help you do is decrease that pelvic diameter. And that's really those open book pelvic fractures where you're going to decrease the volume in which the patient has to bleed. If that is the case and, you you know, you are uh, fairly suspicious that, that you've just reduced an open book pelvis and then you've put that pelvic binder on, a little internal rotation of the lower extremities and taping them into that position is going to further decrease that sort of anatomic bleed space, if you will, and not a bad idea to add to your pelvic binder. Hmm, that's a great little pearl. So just to kind of summarize there, the, the do's and don'ts of pelvic fractures in the first 15 minutes, don't rock the pelvis. Either one person or zero people are going to be examining the pelvis. If you do examine the pelvis and you suspect that it's open, keep the pelvis closed, keep your hands there, squeeze tight until the pelvic binder is on. You're not applying the pelvic binder or the sheet, if that's what you're using, over the iliac wings. You're applying them over the greater trochanters. And then a nice little pearl there is to tape together the legs internally to help close the pelvis even further. Dr. Bosman, you had mentioned doing a vaginal and rectal exam in the trauma patient. So you're in your small center, you've got this really sick trauma patient, you want to get them out. Is there any value in doing a vaginal exam? Is there any value in doing a rectal exam? I would think that if you're taking the approach of sick patient, I'm just going to put a pelvic binder on or a sheet on, you know, no matter what's going on down there, I would think that a rectal exam and a, a vaginal exam might just delay things further and you don't really need them. Are, are there situations where you really would want to do a vaginal and or a rectal exam? I mean, I can say that if it's not going to change your management in that moment, then I would say no. I think I would probably put an asterisk caveat to that is if you've got extended travel time planned, you're six, eight hours away from your trauma center. I think it behooves the, you know, the careful emergency physician to check for a tampon, which could then obviously add insult to injury in terms of a, you know, a retained foreign body and, and risk of infection, et cetera. But I would say the rectal exam is, is not part of my practice because it's not changing my management in the acute situation. Yeah, I think the exception is is detecting open injuries. So uh, somewhere along the line, if somebody's got a pelvic fracture, we do a rectal exam. If there's blood, you'll provide antibiotic coverage that you might not have otherwise. And those patients, they need a diverting colostomy at some point, and they may be more likely to go to the OR versus angio. So open injuries, detecting open injuries, and, then, and that includes, I guess, injuries into the vaginal vault. They do sort of dictate management. They might not dictate immediate management. And I, I think... To Dr. Bozeman's point, I think if you have other priorities at the time during a resuscitation, those probably aren't really all that relevant. But somewhere along the line, um, if you detected a pelvic fracture, females should probably have a vaginal exam. Everyone should have a rectal exam. If there's blood, then you have to suspect that injury is open, and that would dictate some of your next steps. All right. In terms of the type of pelvic binder or the greater trochanter binder, any evidence that any of the one binder is better than another, uh, assuming you guys have no conflict of interest and aren't buying stocks in any of these companies, uh, is a sheet fine? Are the pelvic binders any better than a, than a sheet? 
Well, I mean, Teapod bought me a Bentley, so I'm in a bit of a conflict of interest position here. But <laughs> no, I don't get any any money from anyone. But I, I, the, the commercial binders tend to be a little bit more successful at closing the pelvic diameter. I think that's probably less true if you use a sheet the right way. In other words, we already talked about positioning. The other thing that I'd, I've always found hard to understand is the sort of concept of twisting and rolling up a sheet and then tying in a knot across the patient's pelvis. You have to be pretty strong to get that to close the pelvic diameter to the extent that you would want. I also think that bespeaks another pearl that we haven't touched on, which is the importance of doing a post-reduction film. Like any other bone, if you're going to reduce the pelvis, you should do an x-ray afterwards as well. You may actually not have an x-ray until you've reduced the pelvic bones, and that's fine. But if you have one, you put on a binder, you should do another x-ray to see what you've accomplished. And very often we'll have, we'll have these patients arrive with sheets tied around their pelvis and the sheets are, they're very decorative, but they haven't really done anything in terms of reducing the pelvic diameter at all. Whereas if you take a sheet, you fold it, you have a two operator system whereby you bring the sheet across, pass it to the other operator, pull it between the two of you, and then close it with some towel clips. That's going to, generally speaking, put enough force on the pelvic bones to close the diameter. So in the end, I, I, I care less about what sort of mechanism you use and more just that you are applying the correct amount of force and you're looking at things with a post-reduction x-ray to see what you've accomplished. Great. So we'll have some photos of that technique of binding the pelvis with a sheet for those people who don't have pelvic binders in, in their EDs. We've talked about a lot of stuff already in the podcast. You know, at this point in your care, you and your team have had to tackle a whole bunch of issues. So Dr. Hicks, how do you and your team kind of keep track of what's going on in a hairy trauma resuscitation, especially in your, in your situation where you might have four or six or eight or 10 people in your resuscitation bay? How do you keep track of all those people and what's going on? Well, some of it just comes back to sort of good team behavior, which is, you know, either whether you buy in a sort of a 10 for 10 or, you know, a pause every 10 minutes to give a recap of the situation or just a, a scripted periodic situation report to your team of articulating priorities and where you think the resuscitation is and then seeking input from the team. I think that's requisite, particularly in a dynamic situation where you have a lot of injuries to keep track of. That initial prediction that you made prior to the patient arriving is likely going to change five or 10 minutes in and then five or 10 minutes after that. So you have to make sure you're taking the time to update your team some visual ways to do that, a very simple thing that came out of a lot of the insights you work that Petra was largely responsible for is just having a whiteboard up in the room that you can write stuff on. That's probably more useful in conveying the initial information to the team. I mean, I find I, I'm not writing a lot on that board as the situation continues. But one of the major annoyances I think that anyone who's been in a trauma bay can speak to is the notion that EMS shows up, gives a, a pretty decent sign over that everyone can hear. And then as team members come in, they're like, hey, what happened? What's going on? What's the story? And every time <laughs> you provide those details is a little bit of information delay, probably just by virtue of the fact that you're getting annoyed with repeating yourself over and over and over again. And it distracts from the situation at hand. So now we tend to have one person sort of write the case details on the whiteboard when sign over is provided. And as team members come in, they've just gotten used to looking at the board or if they come and ask me what's going on, I just point silently at the board and, and ask them to look at it. And then that sort of takes the place of that initial sign over and gets us up to sort of that first sort of five or 10 minute time point where we do a situation report. Love it. The whiteboard. I would probably just add to that a clock, a stopwatch of, uh, you know, we have a digital stopwatch uh, that we put at time zero when the patient comes through. That's really helpful because you can sort of go down that rabbit hole of your trauma resuscitation and look up and all of a sudden you're at more minutes than you perhaps thought had elapsed at that point. The whiteboard is also really helpful and, uh, you know, that need to come back every 10 minutes, if you will, and reassess, you know, I wish I was making this up, but you have times where a second EMS person comes in and says, oh, we found this insulin pump in the front seat of the car. Did you guys need this type thing? And, oh, that's really helpful information. Thank you very much. You know, oh, we need to double check a sugar and recognize that, you know, this car crash may have been because of a hypoglycemic episode or, or what have you. So I think just to be able to check back, the 10-minute mark, I think, is an easy thing to remember, especially if you've got a time clock. For those of the listeners working elsewhere that are then going to be transporting their patients out, to have an ETA from your air ambulance or from your transport personnel as to when they may arrive and, and what your expected course is, is going to help you plan for how many blood products you're going to need to send with the patient, is going to help you plan of, oh, you know what, we're going to actually be rounding that second dose of antibiotics at the four or six hour mark before the patient goes out with their open fracture or whatever the case may be, um, is just to help you prompt 
And then I would say the only other thing is to force yourself to ask the question, has family arrived? Has anyone spoken to the family? Great literature that family involvement in that, those first resuscitation uh, moments is critically important for them not to only know that you're doing your best, but also to get any further information of past medical history of of anything else that could be going on that's going to give you uh, really, really critical tips to managing your patient properly. Well, I, I don't know if our listeners are going to be able to keep up with all these amazing pearls you guys are dropping. <laughs> all right, let's move on to resuscitation targets. So your targets are going to be different for the patient who's bleeding out. And for the patient with a major head injury, there's the spinal patient, there's the older patient. Let's start with the patient bleeding out. So we've talked about when you might want to activate your blood, your TXA, when you might want to give a touch of fluid or not give a touch of fluid until your blood gets there. But what about the other end of it? Like, what are you actually going for? What are your targets? Uh, You had alluded to earlier, Dr. Hicks, that your targets are going to be very different after they go to the OR, then before they go to the OR, there's the idea of permissive hypotension. What are your resuscitation targets for this guy in this case, who you know is bleeding in the belly, you know, his liver is probably swimming in blood. What, what are your resuscitation targets going to be? Well, again, I think we got to chop the case up a little bit into sort of the first 20 or 30 minutes where you're flying a little bit blind versus, you know, further on in the case where you have a little bit more uh, hard data to, to follow. In the very early going, my targets are, do they have adequate tissue perfusion? Really get away from the notion of hard blood pressure targets. There may be an exception in head injury patients, but we can talk about that. But again, if anyone can tell me what blood pressure a patient needs, what number is required, how much their heart rate has to come down, I'm all ears in hearing what that answer is. But we don't know. Every patient's a little bit different. What we do know is it's important to perfuse the major organs until such time as they can get their active bleeding controlled. And so that's what I'm focusing on. And my second target, if you want to call it that, is adequate hemostasis. It really is a paradigm shift in there. Nowhere in that discussion do things like heart rate and blood pressure really come up in the discussion. It's adequacy of tissue perfusion, and it's the ability to form a workable and functional clot. And those are my my targets. I don't know if that sounds overly flippant, but... I'm happy to hear otherwise. If if anyone has any sense of what numbers we ought to be shooting for, I'm happy to listen, but I've never really been able to figure that out myself. All right. That sounds perfectly reasonable for the bleeding out patient. So that's a good sort of review of what we had mentioned before. What about the head injured patient? You know, your resuscitation targets are going to be very different because the worst thing for a head patient is a blood pressure of 70. So Dr. Bosman, what are your resuscitation targets going to be for the head injured patient? I would say your MAP's got to be 80 millimeters of mercury, and you can do that with normal saline. So this is not the patient that, if they're an isolated head injured patient, doesn't necessarily need to be blood that's doing that for you. You really want to prevent hypoxia. You really want to prevent hyper or hypoglycemia, and you can do that with scrupulous uh, glucometers. You want to elevate the bed. You're probably going to be early on talking to your neurosurgical, you know, receiving, and they can guide your your mannitol versus hypertonic saline administration if need be. But I'm doing that in conjunction with a, with a TTL neurosurgical center. Um, so I think the big ones are avoid hypotension, probably an MAP of 80. Watch out for hypoxemia. Keep your uh, your glucose within normal parameters. And speak early with your receiving neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not uncommon that you'll have a patient who's bleeding in the belly and in the head. Those have got to be tough situations. Uh, Dr. Hicks, any words of wisdom for resuscitation targets in terms of the patient who's both bleeding out and has a major head injury? Well, I mean, if you really want to incite controversy and get people uh, out in the streets with, with their pitchforks in hand, this is a good topic to bring up because it is true, we think, that a lower blood pressure is associated with worse outcomes in neurologic injury. That's just an association, though. It's never been demonstrated that if you improve that patient's blood pressure by way of aggressive volume resuscitation, that their neurologic outcomes improve. It's just an association, right? Blood pressure low, bad outcomes in brain injury. 
So that shouldn't necessarily inform what we do in terms of resuscitation. If you have an isolated head injury and you want to improve their blood pressure, by all means, if you think that's going to help their brain injury. But bear in mind, you have no idea what their CPP is. You have no idea what their ICP is. And even if you know both of those things, you know you have no idea what their local tissue perfusion is like. And when I speak to neurointensivists, they're often the first ones to say, hey man, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what blood pressure they need. They've got a jugular bulb in place. They've got a Lycox monitor. They've got a dural volt. They've got an EVD. And they're still looking and going, I, I, I don't know. It's anyone's guess. So if you think you can predict tissue perfusion, uh, local tissue perfusion in the brain by way of a systolic blood pressure, good on you, but it's probably not accurate. The bigger challenge I think is in this patient who you think is bleeding. And again, I think this comes back to that notion of focusing on physiologic priorities. Bear in mind that that recommendation of a MAP of greater than 80 applies to patients who have what's characterized as a severe brain injury, right? So Glasgow coma scale less than eight, lateralizing findings, depressed skull fracture. It's not every person with a head injury. And I think you still have to look at the patient and say, okay, this patient's been bonked in the head with a lead pipe, but they've been shot in the abdomen twice too. And I think their greater threat to life is bleeding out from that gunshot wound. Therefore, I'm going to prioritize a controlled resuscitation strategy so that they don't bleed to death over their neural resuscitation. And I think in that circumstance, it's perfectly acceptable to let that patient's blood pressure run lower because that's the more life-threatening injury. Whereas somebody who um, has a severe brain injury from a motor vehicle collision, but has a small splenic hematoma that's bleeding a little bit, well, I think that patient, their neural resuscitation needs to have priority and not the, not, not the notion of permissive hypotension or controlled resuscitation. So the answer is it kind of depends. And I think it still requires the practitioner and the team to look at the injury and say, of the two, which one do I think is the most immediately life-threatening? And then you kind of have to prioritize based on that. There's no one real script that's going to tell you the answer in all patients. And you really, I think, have to be careful with taking every patient with a head injury and saying, well, that patient needs an MAP of greater than 80 because every patient's going to be a little bit different. Sounds like you've had that debate before. <laughs> <laughs> I've thought carefully about how my answer is, is yeah. going to proceed. And it's, it's a tough one, right? These, these, the, the, these patients are a challenge and yeah. you have two priorities that are diametrically opposed in many circumstances. And neither of them have really good answers in terms of what target you're shooting for. So again, I mean, it, it, it sounds like a sucky answer, but it's actually perhaps the most useful one for clinicians in the early stages of a resuscitation, which is you, you have to use your judgment. All right. So that's the head injured patient. What about the, the spinal patient? So let's say you can't elicit any lower extremity reflexes in this patient. You know, you can't get any power or sensation, nothing. You're pretty sure they've got a spinal injury. How are your resuscitation targets going to change in that situation? So there's not great, again, do this and your patient will avoid badness. You know, aiming for a higher MAP target in that SCI patient, you know, 85 to 90 millimeters of mercury, I think is reasonable. Uh, there's thoughts that this may improve clinical outcome, but no published RCTs on this one to tell you what to do. And then you sort of have to weigh the risks and benefits of that resuscitation versus versus not. So, you know, did they get shot? And that's why they have uh, the SCI in the first place. And they're also bleeding elsewhere, I think, as Chris eloquently pointed out this is a this is a judgment call but I think in the isolated uh, spinal cord injury with nothing else going on I think your MAP target probably needs to be 85 to 90 recognizing you need that uh, perfusion improvement of clinical outcomes and with a target of 80 to 85 map for these patients it really is critical that we try and achieve that as that seems to be the best way to sort of optimize outcomes no doubt these patients are bleeding until proven otherwise, and they'll often get a couple of units of packed cells. But if it's pretty apparent on a clinical exam that I'm dealing with a patient with a high C-spine injury, neurogenic shock, uh, this would be the time that the, the few instances in trauma that I will uh, start to use vasopressors. And for me, we just keep it simple in trauma. We're simple people. It's norepinephrine. That's um, not been well studied, but it is uh, falls within what the guidelines would recommend. 
They used to recommend dopamine. That's really out the window now. And these patients, you can use uh, norepinephrine, perhaps in, a, in addition to uh, if you haven't yet ruled fully out uh, hemorrhagic shock, then you give that alongside blood. Um, but you're really your goal is to get to 80, 85 for a, a MAP. All right. So just to sum up there, the patient bleeding out, controlled hypotension above a systolic of 70. In the isolated head injury patient, probably you want to go for a MAP of 80. In the isolated spinal injury, you probably want to go for a MAP a little bit higher than that. If you've got a mixed bag, then it's a judgment call of which one's the more emergent, life-threatening injury, and you're going to target towards that one. We've talked about resequencing the resuscitation. We've talked about how airway usually comes after circulation. There's going to be a couple situations where airway is going to be first, but most of them, it'll be second. I want to talk a little bit more about airway, though, in terms of what the general considerations are in the trauma patient that are different than most patients. I mean, we've talked about resuscitate before you intubate. How are you going to modify your airway management in the trauma patient versus the patient who's septic or a GI bleed? As Andrew points out in his, you know, focus on resuscitation of the patient before the intubation of the patient, recognizing that an RSI as a prescription for any and all comers uh, in a weight-based cocktail of medications that needs to be just sort of banged in one, two, anesthetic agent and then paralytic is probably inadequate in terms of recognizing the nuances and the and the physiology really that's happening for your trauma patient. So recognizing that the shocked patient needs less of the induction agent for sure, recognizing that you're going to have some cardiac sequelae of, of your induction agent in and of itself, and and that those medications in and of themselves can cause furthering of your cardiac difficulties and loss of further perfusion. Um, so recognizing that in many states, you're going to have to dial back your induction doses. Also recognizing that the RSI isn't the thing that you automatically need to do. Sometimes we need to delay that intubation and resuscitate that patient, but sometimes we need assistance to resuscitate that patient, and that may mean this delayed sequence induction that may involve some whiffs of medication to allow proper pre-oxygenation, denitrogenation, et cetera, of your patient to maximize your chance of of establishing that tube without having a peri-intubation arrest. So I think that recognizing that you need to dial back your dosage of induction agents as well as to consider delaying, you know, that sequence to allow proper oxygenation, to allow the time necessary to properly optimize your patient before you uh, go through with your RSI is probably pretty critical. So just to reiterate there, your induction dose, uh, you know, rather than the usual two milligrams per kilogram of ketamine, you're going to be going with maybe half of that. Maybe a quarter of that. You know, the elderly shocked patient maybe is 0.5, 0.25. You might need a lot less. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, in the end, we we have lots of, I think, fairly circular discussions about what drugs to choose for induction and trauma. Sorry, I guess it's not induction, but for to facilitate intubation. And I think it's less about the drug and more about the dose that you choose. You know, you could probably choose almost anything and use it as an induction agent. If you use it in the right dose, that's fine. Propofol is conceptually banned from the trauma room, and yet intubating a hypotensive trauma patient with 10 or 20 milligrams of propofol goes just fine most of the time. Uh, so it's more about the the dose than than the specific agent. But I definitely agree with the principle that you know, in a shocked patient, whatever agent you choose, I mean, we've ordained ketamine with these miraculous <laughs> properties of of being the ideal drug in every situation. And the reality is, is it isn't, particularly in patients that have a, a positive shock index. We know that in patients that have a, a shock index of less than one, those are the patients where you're going to see that increase in heart rate, that increase in blood pressure uh, that we expect from that drug. But in patients with a shock index of greater than one, that isn't true. So even even the mighty K has those negative uh, ionotropic effects that any drug will have to some degree, and we have to be mindful of that. So I, I totally agree. Half the dose, a quarter of the dose, depending on the patient that you that you have. I, I guess just the one plea that I would make is don't use nothing. We do hear about trauma patients and critically ill patients getting intubated with paralytic only, and I think that should be a, a practice that's completely abolished. Uh, unless you have a patient who's in full cardiac arrest, you should never be intubating patients with just a paralytic. And that may seem like it's something that we don't need to say, and yet it's something that we still hear about happening from time to time. 
the corollary to that is your paralytic dose doesn't go down. If anything, your paralytic dose should go up, right? Um, because you're going to need a somewhat higher dose of whatever paralytic you choose uh, in a patient that's got a low flow state to make sure that you're actually getting the paralysis that you want. So drop the dose of your induction agent, but keep uh, your paralytic dose the same or perhaps even higher than what you might normally use to make sure you get good intubating conditions the mm -hmm. first time. Yeah, don't not use the paralytic. You know, the, the can't intubate, can't ventilate patient is going to be the can't intubate, can't ventilate patient, whether you use sucks or whether you use rocuronium or don't be shy of your paralytic. It's going to give you the best chance of first pass success. And uh, I think it's essential that we not steer away from the fact that, uh, you know, you may temporize measures with some whiffs of ketamine to optimize ventilation, optimize oxygenation before your RSI, but you're going to give an RSI with a paralytic to maximize your chance of first pass success. One of the biggest reasons we've just spent talking about, you know, who's in occult shock and why does it matter? One of the biggest reasons is so that we can predict who might be at risk for peri and post-intubation hypotension or cardiac arrest, ultimately, hopefully not. But if we can identify that patient in our initial primary survey, we can then titrate the dose of the airway medications, particularly the induction agent, far better and we likely will lower that dose so that if I see a single drop in the field uh, or I see several drops in the BP in the trauma bay or I've identified that there's other obvious evidence of shock, I'm going to reduce my dose of induction agent and I'm usually using ketamine, uh, but even ketamine, I'm going to reduce the dose because I've identified and I know that these patients are still at risk for dropping their blood pressure which is not great, particularly if you're head injured, and they're certainly at risk for post-intubation hypotension and ultimately the devastating outcome of cardiac arrest. I want to talk a little bit about positioning of the trauma patient. I was chatting with, with Weingart at Recess TO just a couple of months ago about airway and trauma patients, and I had suggested this idea of placing the patient in reverse Trendelenburg so that the head is elevated basically as soon as you're done with the fast. Because in reverse Trendelenburg, you might miss some blood in the, in the belly. So basically, your fast is going to be done in the first couple of minutes, and then you put the patient right into reverse Trendelenburg for the rest of the resuscitation, the thinking being that the respiratory physiology is going to be better. If they're brain injured, the brain physiology is going to be better. You know, we're always told to elevate the head of the bed in the brain injured patient. It's become more of a standard practice now to intubate with a head elevated. Although I still see trauma patients flat on the stretcher during the entire resuscitation. What do you think about putting the patient in reverse Trendelenburg um, after you've done the fast for every trauma patient? I think that's fine. I think that for the reasons that you allude to, though, I don't know. I don't. I'm not sure how much apart from ventilatory mechanics is really to improve your airway approach. I mean, all of those head up, bed elevated positions that we refer to tend to involve more than just the head up. It involves, you know, flexion at the base of the skull and extension at the occiput, which you can't really do for a patient who's in C-spine precautions. And I don't know if I've ever really tried it. I can't say if I've intubated a lot of patients sitting up, but I've never intubated people just in C-spine precautions who are in reverse Trendelenburg. Uh, so I don't know how that would go. I have no issue with reverse trend, we do that all the time, but reverse trend simply for the purposes of facilitating airway, I haven't I haven't seen it done. I haven't tried it. Reverse Trendelenburg is especially important for this sort of higher BMI patient, the patient that's going to struggle with the panis effect, if you will, um, and so for that patient. But I, I think I'm with you, Chris, that I, I still intubate flat um, and then reverse Trendelenburg thereafter. Uh, so my fast is done flat, my intubation is done flat, and then reverse Trendelenburg thereafter to optimize breathing at that point. All right. So suffice to say, start flat and then think about putting your patient in reverse Trendelenburg after you've got the airway, after you've done your fast, especially if they've got high BMI, especially if they've got a serious head injury. Mm-hmm. To your point about making patients lie down, we do that all the time too in trauma patients and, and it often doesn't make sense, right? We've had a few airway catastrophes that have occurred because in the one case I'm thinking of, a patient presented with a bad facial smash injury and they were much more comfortable sitting up uh, and they actually arrived to the hospital sitting up but were made to lie flat and wear a collar and that patient aspirated in CT, ended up as a crash intubation and eventually a candidate can't oxygenate and needed a cricothyrotomy. 
I think we we give the C spine. I don't want to go too far into the <laughs> murky waters of C spine protection, Poke except the bear. to say I think that we we overemphasize the importance of C spine precaution, often at the expense of airway in particular. And my perspective is, if you have a patient who's more comfortable sitting up, particularly if you have concerns around airway, let that happen. You know, you may need to lie them flat for when it comes time to intubate or do something else. But if the position of comfort is upright. I think you should maintain that. We had a patient not too long ago who presented basically just like that, did a bullseye onto a windshield, uh, was the exam answer version of a difficult airway in that they had a short stubby neck. The, the patient was, shall we say, behaviorally challenged and was quite agitated at the time of presentation and would not lie down and would not wear a collar. And there was some talk in the room about, should we just sedate this patient so we could get them to lie down and wear a collar? And the answer is, why? why? Until it came time to intubate, that patient was much more comfortable sitting up. And that facilitated a lot of things and a lot of work and preparatory work we did around airway, such that when it came time to intubate, and it was a really challenging intubation, we were much better prepared to do so. In other words, the patient was upright until we were ready to induce, and then they went down. So I would really discourage the notion of making all, to your point, making all trauma patients just lie flat, because that's not necessarily most advantageous for the patient's physiology, and it doesn't always facilitate procedural interventions like airway. Great. So that's airway. I want to talk a little bit more about breathing as well. We had talked about bilateral thoracostomies. In this patient, we're certainly going to do thoracostomy on one side, but you often hear of really sick trauma patients getting bilateral thoracostomies in the first 10 minutes of resuscitation. Which patients would require bilateral thoracostomies? And if they do require bilateral thoracostomies, are we just talking finger thoracostomies? Are we putting in big fat, you know, 36 or 40 French chest tubes as a small chest tube adequate, 28 to 32 French? You know, I've even heard of of using those tiny little pigtail catheters in trauma patients. Are those okay? So the first question would be then, when do you require bilateral thoracostomies? And if you do, then what kind of tube are you putting in after that and for transfer? Sure. So I think the patient with undifferentiated shock that hemonumo is on your list. I think that patient without another source is a candidate for bilateral uh, thoracostomies. I think that patient that you have no other reason as to why they're overtly shocky, you know, you can easily take that off the list. Now, do you do that with bilateral finger thoracostomies or do you do that with a needle? I think you know, when I trained, traditionally we did, you know, mid-clavicular, second inner space, and I think emerged practitioners were probably notoriously terrible for missing the, the pleural space, which was what you were trying to get to in the first place. So, you know, certainly the fifth inner space, just anterior to the mid-axillary line, is where you're going to go. I think using a flimsy, tiny little 22-gauge angiocath is probably not the thing you're going to want to use. So use a big and bulky and long angiocath if you're going to use a needle to decompress. If you're suspicious enough, then do a finger uh, thoracostomy, which is an easy technique. It requires you yourself and a, a knife, which is not difficult. Um, and it at least takes it off your list initially. And you can always loop back if you're a single operator to then put your chest tubes in at that point. So I would say, you know, if it's on your list and you've, you're have you down the algorithm to the point where you need to act on the immediate threats to life, then I think, you know, bilateral thoracostomy is, is not a bad idea. Whether you use a needle or a finger, I think is up to you know, operator skill. And uh, if you're going to use a needle, which I think probably is the less advantageous of the two, just make sure it's long and make sure it's, uh, you know, of a caliber that's not going to kink, that's not going to uh, compress uh, once you put it in. Yeah, I think in a in a arrest or peri-arrest situation, you should almost always favor open procedures to percutaneous procedures, you know, an open airway technique. Uh, when it comes to decompression, there's really no way of knowing if you stick a catheter in and you don't get a um, what that really means. Does it mean there was no tension phenomenon? Does it mean your catheter wasn't long enough to get kinked? You don't really know. You tend to get one, a much more, you can be much more convinced that you've decompressed a tension phenomenon with the finger thoracostomy because you know you're in the chest versus not knowing. And you tend to get a more complete evacuation of that tension phenomenon when you make a big hole with your finger as opposed to a catheter. I mean, I think the only circumstance in which you 
would favor a catheter decom- needle catheter decompression over a finger is if you were a single operator and you were really pressed for time and let's say you, you had a dynamic airway that you also yep. needed to manage fine stick a catheter in and move on because it's it's super quick but the, the, the operator inexperience thing I wonder a little bit about that because really you shouldn't be putting a needle thoracostomy in if you aren't comfortable doing a chest tube right because bear in mind, a chest tube is always mandatory after you've stuck a needle in. And a finger thoracostomy is really just the first part of a chest tube without the tube. I so, would say for that single rural practitioner that's going to see a, a, a trauma every five years, then a 10-gauge, like three-inch long needle in the you know in the fifth interspace uh, mid-axillary line, I think, to allow time for, for his or her general surgeon perhaps to arrive or a, a more experienced practitioner, I think is a completely reasonable initial stab at things and, and may if you will, uh, and may temporize measures. But I would agree with Chris that a finger uh, into the chest with confirmation with the tip of your finger that you're in the right space is actually an easy procedure. Uh, But I would say that for the single operator, either a needle or a finger, and then looping back to put the the chest tube in at a a time a little bit later is, is a reasonable time purchaser, if you will. A finger thoracostomy, when done right, should take about thirty seconds. Thirty seconds, yeah, I right? agree. So I don't, I don't actually know when it when it comes. To, you, you're talking about the procedure cards that you have for trauma, which I completely agree with, and you know it, it shouldn't really take that long to get yourself a knife and a Kelly, a pair of scissors and a glove to do the finger yeah. thoracostomy. And by the time you've hunted down a catheter, I don't know that the time save is is really all that different. And yeah, I guess if you're waiting for the cavalry to come to finish off your your needle decompression, that's one option. I'm still uncomfortable with the idea that you would use a needle without necessarily being able to follow it up on your own with a finger thoracostomy and a chest tube. I think you need to be able to to finish the job, so to speak. And if you're decompressing the chest with a needle, you have to have the skill set to be able to do a finger thoracostomy and chest tube to follow. And I'd be uncomfortable with the circumstance where you could do one but not the other. All right, so we've talked about a lot of tips and tricks and pearls and pitfalls and approaches in the first 15 minutes of trauma. Let's talk about what I'm going to call the last 15 minutes, and that is packaging your patient up for transfer to a trauma center if you work in a place that isn't a trauma center, which is probably about 98% of centers uh, in Canada. So the first question, Dr. Bosman, what are the indications to transfer to a trauma center. The indications are going to be a little bit different depending on your region, but generally speaking, which patients should you be thinking about transferring out of your department? So this is going to be institution-specific, and you and you alone will know what the capabilities of your institution are. But anytime your patient outstrips your ability to care for that patient successfully in your institution, they need to move down the line to higher levels of care. So in my place, this this includes usually, you know, the trauma patient with two systems, the trauma patient that needs a neuro ICU, the trauma patient that's going to need either interventional radiology or a trauma laparotomy or pelvic fractures or long bone fractures that are complex and need a trauma care uh, management uh, scenario, suspected spinal uh, injuries, patients presenting with with paraplegia, quadriplegia, and the patient that's going to need, as I said, the the higher level of uh, of head trauma care, you're going to need to speak with your your local practitioners, whether that be orthopedics or general surgery, about what they may or may not be willing to accept. So, you know, certainly for our orthopedics and our site, they're they don't want to accept the acetabular fractures. They're going to need to go out, but they would do an open tib fib in a patient that skis down the hill and hits a chairlift pole or what have you. So, I think you have to be institution specific, and as soon as that patient is anticipated either to already be or anticipated to uh, define themselves as being outside your ability to care for the patient, then you need to very quickly start moving them down the the pathway to higher levels of care. Recognizing the earlier you can consult those higher levels of care, you not only have that accepting physician, but you have the time to transfer that patient to that accepting physician. And those are all going to lead to sort of the ongoing elapsed time that your patient uh, is experiencing before they're in definitive level of care for their injuries. And Dr. Hicks, from the perspective of getting the call from the rural or or non-trauma center, what are some of the things that you're thinking about when you're deciding whether or not to accept a, a patient in transfer? What, what are some of the pitfalls you've seen in determining whether a patient should be transferred or not? 
Well, I mean, first of all, I'm generally speaking completely floored by the level of trauma care that people can provide in the community or, you know, well beyond the community up in, up in very r remote and rural areas with just a doc and a nurse. And I think the challenges come from calling for transfer either too early or too late. The too late one, it's a bit of a Goldilocks phenomenon. You want to get it just right. Too <laughs> early is less of an issue, but I, I have definitely had calls I would say less from rural and remote communities and probably from communities more surrounding a trauma center where their perspective is, well, you guys are just down the street. Let's get this rolling. Uh, but you'll, you, you may get calls where the primary survey is still underway. And so I'll ask a bit of data like, okay, you know, can you tell me what the patient's chest x-ray shows? And one hasn't been done yet, you know, in a case of penetrating trauma. I get the initiative to move that patient out quickly. But I do think there are a certain you know, number of things along that ABCD primary survey that really need to be gotten to before you make that call. I'm awful hearing about the patient early, but often what I'll say is, look, I absolutely agree that patient needs to come, but it sounds like they need 15 more minutes of resuscitation from you. Let's mobilize uh, resources for transport. But these are the things I think we need to accomplish before that happens. That's a comparatively rare scenario, but it does happen. The more challenging one is the notion of waiting too long. And we have lots of data on this, right? It takes hours and hours and hours from if a patient presents to a non-trauma hospital for them to get to that final destination if they end up at a, at a non-trauma center first. And I think our reasons for that are some, some of them are system and resource related, but it also relates to the uh, intention of the treating team and the, and the treating physician. And I think there seems to be a, a desire or an imperative to recognize all injuries prior to transport before making that call, which leads to things like long delays to CTs and workups to identify injuries that they can't handle locally and so on, which can present a real problem, particularly if it's just going to extend bleeding time. And I think we're probably as responsible for that at trauma centers as anything, because we'll often bark at people for not working up their trauma patients, or what do you mean you don't have a CT of that? I mean, we, we're definitely guilty of sending mixed messages on that front. But I think if you keep that basic principle in mind, which is if we identify this injury by some means, are we capable of managing it here? And if the answer is no, then don't go looking for it. And really what that in many circumstances will constrain your workup and management to are elements of the primary survey and things that you can detect at the bedside or with point of care testing. Beyond that, for most trauma centers, additional workup, and I'm talking specifically about CT imaging, is not going to be indicated because by and large, if you find something you're not going to act on it anyway. Let's talk about the minimal data set that you need then. So it sounds like for many patients seen in a, seen in a non-trauma center, if you suspect intra-abdominal injury based on your POCUS, that you don't need a CT scan, you're going to be transferring those patients and they'll get their CT at the trauma center. That one's pretty clear. But what's kind of your minimal data set? Do you need a chest X-ray on every patient? before they're transferred? Do you need a C-spine x-ray on every patient before they're transferred? Do you need a pelvic x-ray on every patient before they're transferred? So I had a wise mentor uh, many years ago that says, if it's not going to change your management, then why are you doing the test? And I, I think that has to be the underlying principle when ordering tests. So that big T trauma that comes in, missing limbs with no pressure in extremis, doesn't need any imaging other than perhaps your POCUS and a chest X-ray uh, to make sure that your tube is in a decent position because you're going to bind that pelvis and you're going to keep the C-collar on and you're going to use precautions when moving and, and, uh, and transporting the patient. I think when that becomes less clear is with the sort of little t trauma. I'm thinking of a case that's the, you know, the fourth occupant of a, of a multi-occupant uh, MVC, the first three come in by EMS and the and the fourth person drives herself in because she's more worried about her family members than she is about herself and goes on to sort of languish in the in the back hall of a single coverage emergency department with some vague complaints who ultimately then goes on to have a CT which sort of cinches that diagnosis of say an encapsulated spleen or or uh, or liver uh, injury and so Oftentimes, those those imaging uh, modalities are necessary in the periphery because otherwise, there wasn't much else to hang your hat on. Uh, but indeed, then once you have that CT imaging, it makes sense, obviously, to move that patient to the level of care that they require. So 
I would say if it's not going to change your management, then I, I don't think it's necessary. I would say if it done, I think we need to work hard to make sure those images accompany the patient to their ultimate destination, whether that be through image sharing, you know, in your province or in, in your region uh, versus making a CD copy of those images to accompany the patient, because I think we're doing a lot of duplication. I think Chris would probably have more to say on that than I do. Um, but certainly, if, if it's done, make sure the images accompany the patient to their ultimate destination. Yeah, the idea of CT imaging is it's probably not quite as black and white as I made it out to be, because there is a sweet spot for axial imaging prior to transfer that can actually be quite useful. When I say prior to transfer, you know, transport itself is a risky endeavor, right? Uh, and is associated with with some risk to the patient and to the team. So it's not to say that every trauma patient should get flown in a helicopter from a non-trauma center to a trauma center. Uh, that's a resource expense and it comes at some risk to both patient and provider. So this is where local resources really plays in. If you have ready access to a CT scanner and you have a patient that you have a iffy but not slam dunk suspicion of injury on in whom you think if you were to image them and it was normal, you'd take their collar off and send them home. Maybe that is a patient that that should get imaged locally rather than transported simply for the purposes of CT imaging. And I'll always have that conversation with people on the phone. If, if, if it's going to take four hours to call in your tech and it's going to have to happen in the morning and the radiologist locally is going to be a nightmare and it's going to take forever, fine, I understand that. But if you've got a CT scanner down the hall and it's 24-7 access and you can protocol it the right way, there may actually be some value to that. In the majority of cases, though, I think having a scan, even in the scenario you described where you know maybe there's some subcapsular hematoma, one of my mentors when I was training makes the, I think, valuable point of saying a CAT scan can only screw you up sometimes when it comes <laughs> to transporting. Because let's take that patient who's uh, got maybe some vague abdominal pain and you're not really sure. And then you scan them and they've got maybe a little bit of free fluid in their abdomen, but no specific solid organ injury. And you get a waffle report from your local radiologist and it's six hours later. And then you call and then you get somebody on the other end of the phone that says, well, that doesn't sound like anything. I'm, I'm not really sure what to make of that. Why don't you just kind of look after that patient locally? And sure enough, they've got to do a deal injury that's gone unrecognized and, and they get septic and, and get a lot sicker. This comes back to the concept of, well, mechanism itself isn't everything. And in many cases, it isn't anything. But if you're advocating for transporting a patient prior to CT imaging, which should happen the vast majority of times, I think you need to articulate two things, not just do they have a worrisome mechanism, but they have a worrisome mechanism. And I'm concerned about the presence of injury because of the following findings. And I think if you could do those two things, you make, a, you make a much stronger argument for transport without imaging rather than telling yourself, well, I'm not really sure, so I should, I should do a CT so I can sort of demonstrate to myself that they're actually injured. I don't think you really need that. I think you need a suspicion of injury and then you need to be able to, to articulate that on the phone to the person that you're hoping to transport the patient to. But sometimes you get a CAT scan back with wishy-washy findings. That, that just makes transport harder and it can only kind of trip you up in the wrong circumstance. Yeah, it's quite the opposite of the vast majority of patients who need surgical care, where the surgeon will basically not see them unless they have the scan done. Uh, so, you know, for a lot of physicians who don't deal with a lot of trauma, they're used to that way of thinking. And so their instinct is to get the imaging at their center so that they can yep. prove that there's something wrong. And then they'll have the armor, so to speak, to speak to the surgeon to then get them transferred. But uh, trauma is a whole different kettle of fish. To call for a consultation doesn't necessarily mean you need to transfer the patient. And so a consultation for someone who's uncomfortable is a good idea to say, hey, listen, I have this patient, maybe a single system injury, but maybe have some special considerations. Maybe they're immunosuppressed. Maybe they're anticoagulated. Maybe they're pregnant. Maybe they're old, um, you know, and to and to flesh the specifics of that case out with a with a potential receiving uh, TTL can be enormously helpful. And maybe you do some shared decision making about, OK, well, you do have a CT available. Oh, no, you don't have a CT and you'd have to transfer the patient, you know, an hour and a half down the road just to access that CT scanner. OK, let's organize a transfer or you keep them there and, and image them at your site and then we'll talk again in an hour. Um, so I think that those consultations have been enormously helpful to me as a rural practitioner and I would encourage. Uh, you know, if you're if you're concerned, your initial conversation with the TTL is, I have a patient and I need your help, and and go from there. Well said. So, what imaging to get beforehand? I think it's particularly helpful when the patient, when I get a call, the patient's in shock, and maybe that's yet to be defined, and the and the physician's looking to transfer the patient out, which is great. The early call is helpful. It's nice to have a couple of data points. 
one being the chest x-ray, two being the pelvis x-ray, and three being the fast exam, and that includes an extended fast um, because sometimes the chest x-ray just doesn't show the, the pneumothorax. And I get there's varying degrees of expertise with using ultrasound. And so, you know, I certainly accept that not everybody's um, trained in that. If you're at all concerned, going ahead and binding the pelvis prophylactically before you get the x-ray, I'm okay with that. It doesn't take very long to go from the chest x-ray and just shooting a pelvis x-ray, even if it is bound. Don't unbind it. Just get the x-ray because then it can give me a heads up when you're on the phone and say, yeah, there is actually, looks like there's um, lateral compression or there's still uh, opening and there's an AP AP compression fracture uh, with the, the pubic symphysis opened up even despite the binding or whatever it might be so that then I can start thinking about, all right, this is a patient that I'm going to maybe need to mobilize on our end interventional radiology, which might take up to an hour. Uh, and therefore, if I think that this patient's ongoing bleeding... I can go ahead and get that um, mobilized the resources at my site because we don't have endless amounts of resources either. So uh, I think if it's not going to delay things anymore, you know, chest and pelvis x-ray are great tools, great screening tools to help identify or uh, minimally exclude um, the source of bleeding. Let's talk about checklists. So you are packaging your patient up for transfer to a trauma center Dr. Bosman, is there a sort of a, a general checklist that you have before you transfer the patient to make sure that T's are crossed and all the I's are dotted uh, before that transfer? Because I'm sure on on Chris's end of things, you sometimes get patients who they're like, oops, they didn't get this and yep. oops, they didn't get that. What kind of checklist do you use? So I believe you're going to include the checklist in the uh, in the notes. Oh, yeah. Um, and so you can look forward to that. But absolutely, a checklist uh, is enormously helpful to to cue you to remember all those things that you may not remember as you're as you're dealing with the big CABCs. But before transport, I mean, it just simply go through, so go back through your ABCs. You know, make sure that your your circulation, your bleeders are controlled. Make sure your tourniquets up. Make sure your pelvic binders on. Your airways stabilized. You're probably going to want to check pressures in your air tubes if you're if you're planning on heading uh, you know up into a fixed wing aircraft. You've got your IV, you got your IO access or your IO plus your IV access, uh, making sure that you have at least two, you know, to uh, to make sure you have redundancy uh, if you were to lose one. Make sure that anything that needs to be decompressed has been done so. Uh, so the chest specifically, pericardium, make sure your long bones are out to length if there's a, if there's an issue with obvious fractures. And then, you know, check where you are in your, your resuscitation as we've sort of gone back and forth. Make sure that your patient's resuscitated. And what does that mean? Do they have pulses? Uh, you know, are they warm? Uh, are you comfortable with where you're at? And, and what are your resuscitation fluids that you're packing up to take with you? So whether that be blood, FFP, et cetera, make sure the patient's had TXA, patient presents on any coagulation that you've considered a reversal strategy if if appropriate make sure the patient's warm you probably want to put a foley in for your transport so i think that to make sure that you've sort of tidied everything up i think it's the time to say okay what are the last little nuances that i can that i can tidy up before i've gone and the checklist it helps you to remember things like have they gotten ANSEF for their open fractures have they gotten tetanus have they received the antimicrobials that they perhaps need and so i think to have a checklist handy ensures that you can cover off even the little things uh, in a time of fairly high high stress for the operator. So I would say the other thing uh, is to make sure that your name is visible on the chart, whether it is that you put your stamp on the chart. As well, if there are family members who are present, who have given you cell phone numbers, who may be following the ambulance or planning to have family members meet at the receiving hospital, make sure that that is on a piece of paper somewhere because oftentimes you've had fulsome conversations about what someone's advanced directive may be or or who's going to make decisions should things need uh, a next of kin to make decisions on the patient's behalf. And those are essential to send with the patient to make sure that those conversations go with the patient at the time of their departure. Great. So that's a great list. And we'll have a list in the show notes. In particular, there sometimes comes up the issue of sedation for the transfer, what meds to choose, how to run them. What do you suggest for the patient who, let's say, you know, you've resuscitated, who had a, a worrisome blood pressure. Mm-hmm. What do you suggest for sedation during transfer? So I think you always have to sort out why you're sedating the patient. And usually you're sedating the patient because 
they're in pain. So what makes people anxious and what makes people agitated post-trauma is a, is a number of things, but analgesia usually fixes nine out of 10 of those things. So optimize your analgesia first. For me, that that's fentanyl. So you can do aliquots of fentanyl, 25 to 50 uh, micrograms in a, in a bolus. Uh, you can run an infusion if you need it. So that's usually what I would trial in my trauma bait and see where I think the patient is is sitting in terms of their requirements for analgesia, and then certainly um, you can give either aliquots of ketamine or you can, or, or the analgesia slash sedation of your choice. But I think the big issue is to get their pain under control first, and uh, try that strategy out in your department before you're then in a, a small ambulance or small helicopter and and looking for solutions. You talk about pitfalls. I've seen trauma patients post intubation with multiple injuries arrive on a propofol infusion only. And that sucks um, because, <laughs> that yeah, they're sedated, mean. but I'm sure they're in an immense amount of pain. Mm-hmm. And people say, well, yeah, they won't remember any of it. That's not really the point. We don't know that for sure. So, yeah, fentanyl and or ketamine. I find I'm using more and more ketamine infusions these days than I did before, particularly in that patient is a little bit iffy. Um, having said that, fentanyl is, tends to be a very stable agent uh, in terms of maintaining hemodynamics, so perfectly fine as well. And in particular, if you've paralyzed a patient for intubation with a long-acting paralytic, please, please, please don't forget to then add something. If you've intubated somebody with ketamine and rock, your ketamine is going to be gone in a few minutes and your rock is going to hang around and that patient's going to be in pain when that sedation wears off. So make sure that you have something prepared post-intubation. It's just good post-intubation care for any eMERGED patient, but trauma patients in pain in particular need something post-intubation to make sure their symptoms are controlled. Before we leave you, what do you see in the future of trauma care, say, in the next 5, 10, or or 20 years? Will it be all about Rotem? Will it be about every patient going to a trauma center directly? What what do you think is going to happen in in, I think there's going to be designer resuscitation fluids. I think there's going to be that concept that I can give that patient back what what they're bleeding. So I basically can give them back the blood that they're spilling into their peritoneal space or the highway or wherever they've spilled it. So that concept that we could get back to that whole blood resuscitation and give the patient exactly what they need. Yeah, I think whole blood, I mean, it's a political political minefield as well, but... We'll call it designer resuscitation fluid. Sure, that sounds nicer. <laughs> or at the very least, you need goal-directed recess using point-of-care coagulation testing, right? I mean, you talk about yeah. being able to give somebody back what they need. Well, we do have the tools now to, to look at and predict what sort of blood products a patient requires because we know that trauma coagulopathy is not one thing. Sometimes it's factor depletion. Sometimes it's hyperfibrinolysis. Sometimes it's thrombocytopenia. It's a bunch of different things. So being able to tailor your response and speaking of response, you know, non-blood product related adjuncts like uh, fibrinogen concentrate, I think you may see more of. Fibrinogen is that forgotten resuscitation tool, right? That in addition to platelets, you know, the the other major substrate for clot formation is, is fibrinogen. And our our hematologists slap our hands all the time for giving whack loads of packed red blood cells and FFP and TXA, but completely forgetting to check a fibrinogen and replacing with cryoprecipitate and or in the future, fibrinogen concentrate. So I think you'll, you will see these more nuanced approaches to transfusion come up. And I think whole blood poses an interesting solution to that because rather than really wonder uh, what you need to give and what ratios, you have the ability to give a patient back exactly what they're losing without really having to wonder too much about it. Yeah, so I think looking forward, certainly we talk about injury prevention being a key element, but the other end of the spectrum is understanding the trauma survivors. And and Amanda McFarlane and the group at St. Mike's, uh, they've done a ton of work on trying to understand what it's like, what the experience is like, and how it impacts your life as being a trauma survivor. This is stuff that we certainly don't learn about explicitly in how we resuscitate a patient but it's incredibly important and we're hearing from patients what it's like to be lying in a trauma bay with your neck in a C-spine collar staring up. You can't see anybody around you. People are moving all over the place. You have, you're having IVs put in your arms. Nobody's talking to you. I mean, these are very challenging situations. You're in pain. Your family and friends aren't around you and you're suddenly in a room 
and you're trusting a whole set of strangers to take care of you in your most vulnerable state, and then the subsequent operations and rehabilitation that comes along with this and the impact on not only your physical health but your mental health. And I don't think we have a great understanding of that, but as we hear from these amazing survivors, these people that have survived catastrophic injuries, we as clinicians can start to appreciate what is it that we need to do at the bedside. I make a conscious effort now to make sure that I introduce myself as the team leader when the patient's conscious. Hey, listen, we're going to take care of you. And is there somebody you want us to call? And so that we can, you know, these small things, I don't know, I don't have any randomized trials that this results in better outcomes, but I hope that at least it gives that patient for a few minutes a bit of comfort. trauma will just go away because people thrill seek in a in a virtual way so they won't ride their motorbike you know down the 401 nope as long as there's alcohol in this world people will find a way (laughs) yeah i'm trying to think the chair the chairlift pull airbag i don't know something (laughs) something (laughs) yeah maybe the cannabis uh being legalized in canada now will just give us more trauma patients who knows no everyone's just gonna stay home and Oh yeah, maybe maybe people will stop drinking and they'll just sit at home on their couch smoking pot and watching Netflix. Yep. Yeah. With their with their headgear on with their uh, virtual reality (laughs) game. I think it's perfect. We'll be out of jobs. We'll we'll be seeing more MIs and less drama. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for joining us on EM Cases. I think whether you work in a rural community or in a trauma center. You'll reflect on your practice, I hope, when next time you get that patient that rolls in with a soft blood pressure after a trauma. Thanks, Anton, for having me. Yeah, what a great discussion today, Anton. I I love being here, and I love talking about trauma, so I really appreciate it, and um, what a wonderful podcast. Hey, one of the things we can talk about in this podcast is maybe that my favorite part of any trauma resuscitation is waiting to see how the ortho trainee (laughs) <laughs> phrases to the patient that they're going to do a rectal exam because they all have a different way of saying it. I don't know why they just don't come out and say, I'm going to stick a finger in your rectum. Your bottom, yeah. Uh, one, one resident said, I'm going to put my finger in your back passage. In your back passage. Back if passage. If I was a patient, I'd have no idea what that meant. And they never no. prep them for it either. They, they they do the log roll, which is also mostly irrelevant. And then they stick a finger <laughs> in their butt and they never tell them ahead of time. They're like, I'm going to stick a finger in your butt now. I'm always like, okay. You, and the patient's know. like, oh, my back passage. Jeez, I didn't know that was my back passage. No, I had a back passage. <laughs> Do you mean like the, al- the alleyway around my house? What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. The back passage. It's my favorite part. Just That's waiting. That's amazing. That's amazing. They'll insert yeah. a finger in your rectum. I'm going to put my digit in your ass. Everyone yeah. has a different way of saying it.